The following program is brought to you by Caltech. I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Jim Bell, who's an astronomer and planetary scientist, a professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University in Tempe, and an adjunct professor in the Department of Astronomy at Cornell University in Ithaca. Jim's research primarily focuses on the geology, geochemistry, and mineralogy of planets, moons, asteroids, and comets using data obtained from telescopes and spacecraft missions. He's the payload element lead for the PanCam color stereo cameras on the NASA Mars rovers Spirit and Opportunity and has been a member of the science teams on the NASA Near-Earth Asteroid Rendezvous, Mars Pathfinder, Comet Nucleus Tour, Mars Exploration Rover, Mars Odyssey Orbiter, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and Mars Science Laboratory Rover missions. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks for the invitation to, uh, to contribute to what's, I think, going to be a very interesting, interesting workshop. I think uh, my um, presentation will be very uh, complementary to uh, Torrance's, um, although um, I have no theology to profess. Uh, and I was actually quite surprised that Hal got into the whole when is a planet born, the moment of conception debate. Uh, but that's okay, you know. It's, it's all right. Uh, you want to have that argument? That's fine. We can we can debate that over beers later. Um, and and uh, I I um, I don't have a, a wonderful uh, catcher's mask. Uh, I'm an observationalist. So for your theorists, just imagine that I have a one meter spherical force field around myself. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about um, geology and uh, geophysical observations of small bodies, and. I'm going to come at this uh, from a process uh, perspective. So I'll talk about some of the diagnostic uh, potential of uh, geologic processes, observations of geologic processes on small bodies for understanding origin and evolution of, of these objects. And this is going to be a major focus of the workshop, of course. So I'll be talking about impacts, erosion, tectonism, and, and volcanism. Uh, I will intersperse that. Uh, theme with examples from observations of primitive bodies. And as, as Torrance has pointed out, uh, there's a large data set now of, of observations of, of comets, uh, asteroids, and planetary satellites, uh, some likely tru truly primitive, others perhaps not. Uh, and so I'm only going to touch, uh, touch on some of them. I, I can't comprehensively um, do all of them. And then I'll just talk about some some thoughts about future observations and getting at this, this uh, theme that I think is going to pervade uh, by design the workshop, and that is testability. I was uh, you know, teasing Hal earlier that he has the luxury of not having to be bounded by uh, observations and, and testable uh, hypotheses, and that's wonderful. But, uh, uh, but as an observer, we try to link uh, uh, what we see on the surface to specific processes and, and testable hypotheses. And this, uh, this slide that um, Emily Lakdawalla from Planetary Society put together is just a, a very nice uh, synopsis of uh, observations just prior to um, uh, Dawn's mission at Vesta of all of the uh, small uh, primitive or s sort of primitive bodies that have been visited by space missions uh, to their correct scale. So uh, Lutetia held the record for a short time as the largest uh, asteroid having been visited by a spacecraft. And I'll touch on uh, many of the uh, processes and features going on in, on some of these objects. 
we put that in scale. Here's Lutetia compared to Vesta, which is the, the, uh, the subject of Don's investigation now, of course. And we can put Vesta uh, in its perspective relative to Ceres and Earth and Moon. So we're talking about small bodies. Uh, we're talking about um, a very uh, limited set of geologic processes compared to terrestrial planets for example, but still a remarkable diversity and complexity of, uh, of processes. And we start to think, at least I start to think a lot about where does geology begin to be expressed uh, in small bodies. Of course, you know, large enough sizes, you can start to preserve impact craters uh, without being completely destroyed. But there's a threshold size where self-gravity will lead to a, a spherical object shape, depending upon uh, density of uh, bulk density, et cetera. That's, you know, maybe... 300 to 600 kilometers in size, perhaps uh, smaller for uh, more dense objects. And then you can start thinking about differentiation and, and gradational processes with, with significant gravitational forces involved. Larger sizes, more internal heating, uh, volcanism, partial melting, tectonics. And somewhere in there is where, where people define this, this nebulous uh, term of, of planet. Um, I'm one of those weirdos that thinks there's 50-something you know, known planets in the solar system because you know, I, I tend to judge an object by, uh, by itself, not its environment, as it had internal heat and, and complex and diverse and interesting geologic processes. But that doesn't make me popular because then we have to make the, the school children memorize all these names, which would be <laughs> horrible. So um, from the standpoint of planetary surface processes, there are four major geologic processes that we, we study on, on terrestrial planetary surfaces and small bodies, impacts, volcanism, tectonism, and erosion. And it's the combination of these processes, of course, that give us the, uh, the observable features uh, on these surfaces. So let me march through some of those. Uh, of course, impacts are common geologic landforms on all spatial scales, from the uh, comparable to the radius of the body, as on uh, Matilda, which I'll talk more about uh, in a minute, to you know, large basins on the moon, down to tiny little things that we see in, in Mars rover images and other uh, very small scale. Uh, features on planetary surfaces. Um, if you read or teach from uh, Jay Malosh's books, you, you learn about the key morphologic parameters that impacts can uh, that can be used with impact impact craters to deduce or derive uh, physical properties or other information about the surface and subsurface things like the diameter, the depth of a crater, depth to diameter ratio, the the ways that the walls uh, or, or other um, Non-equilibrium features fail, the range of ejecta, whether there's impact melt uh, in that system. Uh, and you can go through um, some pretty interesting details about, for example, depth to diameter ratio and look at cases like uh, the moon, where you get simple uh, 1 to 5 depth uh, diameter ratio up to a certain transitional point where you go from a simple crater to a complex crater. And this is driven by uh, gravity, that, that uh, simple to complex uh, transition. Uh, is uh, is a function of gravity, uh, lowest uh, uh, size on the moon, larger for larger size objects. And so if we extrapolate out to those small primitive bodies, in theory, basically all craters for uh, small bodies smaller than a, a few hundred kilometers are, are really sort of simple. They should be simple bowl-shaped craters. And so that gives kind of a basis, sort of a, a, a fundamental... Um, algorithmic basis for thinking about, well, how has that simple shape then been modified by subsequent geologic processes? Has it been infilled? Has there been uh, some significant uh, modification, uh, erosion uh, of the walls? Has it been modified by 
tectonic forces, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so there's sort of a, 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 at least in my mind, a simplicity to uh, the use of impact cratering for small bodies, although as, as we'll see in some, some pictures in a minute, that there are some complexities that we run into as well. And of course, one of the things that, that geologists and photogeologists do is relative age dating of planetary surfaces by looking at uh, number density of craters per square kilometer. So here's, here's two images of the same body. It's the same number of square kilometers. You know, which one is older, left or right? Left, right? So the, the, the standard answer is it's, it's left, but you, you know, there are assumptions that go into that answer. You know, it, it has to do with the issue of crater retention, for example. It may be the case that this material just retains craters better than that material. You know, I didn't say anything about the composition. I just said that they were on the same body. So there are a number of factors that have to be uh, considered uh, when we think about uh, relative age dating. But in general, it's a, as a kind of a snapshot way just through photography to get an assessment of, uh, of relative age dating. Um, uh, it's just a little animation that I uh, stole from uh, Bill Hartman paper. As you you know build up craters over time, a bigger crater comes in, deposits an ejecta blanket, erases that, and its ejecta blanket either fades into the background or is destroyed. Maybe a, a lava flow or something comes out, and you end up with uh, kind of a, a mess. Uh, and you hire an undergraduate to to count craters, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and this is really still relatively state of the art uh, kinds of basic relative age dating of planetary surfaces. Um, and of course, there's an absolute age dating scale. I'm sorry, this came out kind of crappy. But there's an absolute age dating scale based on, on lunar samples uh, from different Apollo missions that goes back to uh, uh, the oldest uh, rocks in the Apollo collection to, to younger rocks. It shows this uh, strongly exponential, exponentially decreasing rate of impact flux with time. And most of the solar system is tied to that lunar uh, impact flux model, and I've seen people with some trepidation extrapolate that out to Mars and asteroid belt, and I have, you know, nobody knows really how well it, it works out there, although, you know, people like Hal and Bill Bakke and others are thinking hard about that, uh, but, uh, but really only have that sort of one pin point for this model of absolute age dates. So we use relative uh, age dates and, and crater retention age, it's often called, to think about the stratigraphy and uh, uh, age relationships on small bodies. So uh, Torrance mentioned uh, Gaspara and Ida, the first two objects, uh, first two small bodies encountered by spacecraft. So our first look at high resolution, uh, uh, tens to hundreds of meters per pixel on these surface, surfaces. And work by, uh, by a number of colleagues summarized in, uh, in Rob Sullivan's Asteroids 3 chapter for example, shows that there are multiple populations of, uh, of craters on objects like, like Ida and Gaspar. So Ida has three uh, uh, populations that can easily be identified, sort of a fresh, young, small crater population sub-kilometer. And then curiously, two different populations of large impactors, smaller than about six kilometers and larger than about 10 kilometers. And the larger ones are uh, predominantly on one part of the object, and the smaller big craters on, are on another part of the object. And this ha has implied to people, some people, the uh, evidence for uh, some kind of a change in the um, impact reflux environment that this object went through. So either the impacting population changed, but this is all very early, or the, the object moved to a different environment in the solar system. 
So, uh, and similarly on, uh, on Gaspara, two populations of craters, the young stuff and the old stuff, and the old stuff is degraded. And uh, so uh, Gaspar tells us that um, it may be the case that a, a single or small number of large impacts can completely influence a small body and affect your ability to um, <clears throat> basically reset the clock uh, with uh, uh, ejecta deposited across the surface. So there are ways to use uh, just simple crater counts and, and maps of them across um, across these bodies to try to get at some of these issues that, that we'll be thinking about in the workshop of, you know, the, what's the context for this, this crater and what kind of environment is it in? High, high flux environment, low flux, modern environment. Uh, and I'm not saying that these are quantitative ways. I'm not saying that may, they may, may even be testable. Uh, but I think that's something worth, uh, worth poking into because these are some sort of basic, simple measurements that we make at small bodies. It's hard to fathom a mission going without a camera, right? Although I guess people have thought about it. Um, but um, uh, but there are, so there are ways, I think, to make these connections. Um, impacts also reveal uh, stratigraphy, some, uh, just a couple of examples from some recent uh, VESTA imaging, a, a beautiful example of a, a, a crater that impacted on the rim of a larger impact crater. Okay, it, exposing, digging up a very uh, bright, higher albedo material. Another example from Vesta of a, a crater that has uh, exposed, dug up uh, darker, lower albedo material. And each of these cases are being investigated by the Dawn team with the detailed um, near-IR spectrometer data sets as well. So um, interesting ways to get at relative age dating and uh, stratigraphy just by simply observing the, uh, the impact crater population and its... its uh, state of degradation on the surface. Volcanism is, of course, you know, melting of materials and erupting, erupting onto the planetary surface. And on the terrestrial planets, we talk about molten rock. But for some outer planets, satellites, and, and dwarf planets, we'd be talking about ice or cryovolcanism, where uh, the wa water ice is the, uh, is the magma. Or in the case of, of Io, of course, it's, it's sulfur. And that's uh, a, a prime example of outer solar system volcanism on what is hardly a primitive object, of course. Uh, but there's plenty of evidence going back to uh, Voyager imaging and since in the uh, um, Saturnian system and, and the, the other satellite systems as well for resurfacing events on these uh, small bodies. So uh, Mimas, Enceladus, um, Tethys, and Dione all exhibit areas like the example little test that I did before where, uh, and you can really see it uh, very well in, in Tethys, there are large areas that have just a lower impact crater density. And so the suggestion is that there has been some resurfacing events, probably cryovolcanic, uh, over time. Enceladus is, of course, the most spectacular uh, active example of, uh, of uh, cryovolcanic or cryovolcanic-like processes uh, in the outer solar system. Of course, a lot of debate about whether Enceladus is a differentiated object, is it really a primitive object. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, but it gives us uh, some really good uh, ways to come up with observational scenarios. And Torrance and I were talking about, you know, high phase angle imaging is the kind of thing you want to do. And, um, and we should be thinking about these kinds of tests for future missions to small bodies uh, as well. Coming back to the uh, asteroids, uh, Vesta is actually about the same size uh, as uh, Enceladus. And there is, uh, you know, this connection to the HED meteorites that suggest um, extrusion or some kind of uh, magmatic processing 
of these uh, these uh, from uh, to explain these achondrite uh, samples, uh, and in the uh, in the Vesta data from Don, there's uh, sort of weak but growing evidence for the existence of flows or flow-like features on the surface, and lots of debate among uh, the the Don team and the reviewers of their papers uh, about whether these are impact melt. Uh, derived flows or whether they are truly uh, magmatic extrusions uh, across the surface. And so that's uh, some pretty exciting, but of course they're just sort of beginning that, uh, that process as their mapping uh, is, uh, is uh, about to be completed. Uh, from a tectonic standpoint, deformation of a surface from either internal forces uh, volcanic, tidal, or external, I guess impact and, and tidal could be, is external as well. And faults, fractures, folds, all the, the common tectonic features that Southern Californians are, are familiar with uh, are observed on a number of, of small uh, planetary bodies. Uh, one of the most spectacular examples of a ridge in the solar system is this amazing 20-kilometer uh, wide. And, and uh, I, I hadn't been aware until looking up some numbers that it reaches heights of 20 kilometers relative to the surroundings as well on, uh, on Iapetus. You know, what the heck is going on here? Uh, these are, you know, was it a two, two bodies that are welded together? Was there some kind of crazy shock wave from a, a long-gone impact basin? Uh, you know, pretty dramatic example of, uh, of uh, you know, ex surface expression of what must have been some impressive internal forces. Um, similar kinds of features are even seen on, on Eros, which is only about the size of Manhattan Island. Uh, and it's uh, despite the gravitational... Uh, low, low gravity and um, um, uh, relatively uh, well, despite the low gravity, there's a, there's a number of, of features expressed on the surface that indicate a pretty significant amount of, of uh, stress in the interior. Some uh, ridges, grooves, and fractures uh, on the surface. There have been models about that invoke uh, uh, thrust faulting, and you know we're not talking about mercury, right? It's not a planet that has shrunk from from cooling. Uh, but it is an object that does occasionally pass close to the Earth, and, and, and Bill Bakke and others have talked about the tidal forces that are exerted on near-Earth objects when they do make very close passes with planetary bodies. And maybe just that kind of tidal extension on this, op this very elongated object is responsible for the surface expression of these kinds of, uh, of tectonic features. And so there may be ways through just simply observations of structural features and their relationships to learn something about what a very small body that does not have you know, internal seismic activity from magma chambers and core mantle crust, what, what processes could that have gone through? And maybe that involves planetary encounters, and so maybe that involves it having gone through a very different environment than it is today. Again, probably not quantitative, but part of the, the toolkit that one would, would apply using uh, geologic or geophysical observations. Uh, the uh, classic example of grooves is, is uh, the ones emanating from uh, Stickney on Phobos. So some uh, Viking and, and uh, MRO imaging show these uh, just in spectacular form. Uh, lots of different ideas about how they're related to uh, the Stickney event, uh, in including some ideas that that I, I believe claim they're not particularly related to the Stickney event. And so uh, there's been a very... Uh, complex history of uh, deformation in this body. And up until uh, Don got to Vesta, 
that was the prime example of, of grooves and ridges. And now uh, the equatorial grooves and ridges at Vesta are an even larger scale uh, expression of um, probably related to this enormous impact at the South Pole. But one of the most impressive images I've seen lately is these, these beautiful radial uh, fractures. Um, I've seen them described as a sunflower pattern uh, emanating from and around the, uh, the South Polar Basin. So impacts are obviously a, a great potential source of the energy for that uh, compression and, uh, and, uh, and tectonism, uh, but I think tidal forces are, are as well. So uh, this is, uh, again, just the, sort of from the thinking from the Dawn team, and this is courtesy of, of Dave Williams uh, and some of the things they've been talking about at their press conferences lately, looking at the, uh, the surface expression of these uh, ridges and grooves and relating them to specific uh, areas uh, on, the, uh, on the planet and specifically to these two uh, proposed uh, southern hemisphere basins, one older than the, uh, the other. I forget their names. Uh, but there are at, at least two different uh, systems that are uh, expressed that are related to the, the pole positions of these two uh, large basins. So um, small bodies do have tectonics. Kind of interesting. And small bodies have erosion as well, wearing down the high places, filling in the low places, uh, driven by gravity and uh, uh, gravitational non-equilibrium surfaces. Uh, how do you move these things around? How do you, how do, you do mass wasting on a, um, on a small airless, airless body? You need some kind of a perturbing force, and that can be tidal. That could be impact. We, we know these, these bodies are being hit currently by, by small impacts. Uh, and the features that can be created are the same kinds of gradational mass-wasting features that we see on the terrestrial planets, uh, landslides, tailless slope streaks, uh, and there are even some uh, what are looking lo more like uniquely uh, small-body-related um, erosional and, and sedimentary features, these so-called ponds like we see on, uh, on arrows. I'll show a picture in a minute. Uh, just some examples of uh, mass movement and large-scale uh, uh, landslides, flows, uh, perhaps impact melt, perhaps uh, volcanic on Vesta. Here's a nice example of a, a big uh, landslide. This wall of the crater uh, failed and uh, slid down into the bottom. Uh, so there are, um, again, gravity-driven um, gravity uh, processes to take disequilibrium surfaces and bring them down to equilibrium, and so that may have been, of course, triggered by an impact somewhere else. Uh, there are, there's uh, degradation, so just like we see on, on uh, uh, Mars, for example, with, with wind and, and weather degrading craters over time, or the moon, where other impacts are degrading craters over time, uh, small bodies show craters in a variety of states of degradation. And some of them show, you know, very nice examples of, of infill or um, mass wasting to change the, uh, the simple bowl-shaped depth-to-diameter ratios that I was talking about before. So you can go back to the, the theory and, say, and make some inferences about how much activity, how much sediment, how much material has been moved around, and then you know, perhaps back out some information about the kind of uh, perturbational history these objects have been through. Again, maybe not quantitative, but another piece of the, uh, the toolkit. I mentioned those um, enigmatic ponds on, on Eros. This is some work that uh, Mark Robinson and Louise Proctor and others have done. And these were a really interesting feature to find because, first of all, you have to remember, before we got to Eros, there was a big argument about whether asteroids should have regolith at all. 
uh, with you know, gravitational attractions of uh, forces of one centimeter per second squared and less. Why should these things hold on to any ejecta? Should all be gone? Are they just going to be bare bedrock with just you know, super thin dust layers? But in fact, uh, asteroids like Eros and, and many others are now known to have pretty complex uh, regoliths. And very fine-grained particles move around in sedimentary um, cycles, perhaps, uh, uh, related to uh, um, perturbation from impacts or tectonic forces or uh, electrostatic forces. These very small bodies with very, uh, very fine-grained surfaces, some, and some of which get fairly close into uh, to the sun, so uh, significant uh, uh, you know, dust-charging potential in those environments. And that stuff moves around and, and uh, follows. It can be ponded into equipotential surfaces over time. And so uh, this is, uh, was a surprise to see these kinds of, uh, this, this kind of evidence, although it perhaps should have been predicted earlier. Um, I, I wanted to just point, briefly point out another example of uh, Phoebe, uh, which may or may not be a captured KBO. It's in a retrograde orbit around Saturn, but I, I like this picture because it just shows this beautiful example of some slope streaks and mass wasting and, and uh, some failure going on or preparing to go on here and exposing uh, what uh, had been lower layers of stratigraphy that had been dug up in, and exposed in the crater rim. And so not only is it interesting just from a geologic process standpoint to, to think about you know, what's happening to these, uh, to these, uh, these forms relative to the theory, but it's also uh, something that I'm not talking about at all, a, a way to potentially interrogate differences in composition and mineralogy. Uh, so, you know, you could take the, and I'm not sure if they're, I'll bet you they're doing this, right? You take the, Galilei, the uh, Cassini spectrometer and point it in here and, and get at uh, differences in potential composition. And I don't really know what to make of Helene. Uh, some of you may have seen this uh, relatively recent picture, and uh, I mean, this is talk about... Um, uh, resurfaced, right? I mean, there's just, it's, there's a crater there, right? <laughs> there's one there. Uh, I know this is like Io-like crater densities, but this is an icy body with a uh, relatively um, modest uh, uh, density, uh, thought to be modest density. It's not, density is not actually known. Um, but just an enormous amount of sediment transport on this surface. I mean, these look like ski slopes in here, right? Uh, so lots of material moving around. Uh, what is driving that? Was there an impact recently that has, in fact, you know, covered the pre-existing surface with relatively fresh debris? Is it scooping up uh, dust and other debris from the Saturnian environment, stuff that's being thrown off uh, the rings, et cetera? Uh, this, is, uh, this object is the, a Dione Trojan, right? So it's moving around with Dione, uh, so it's dynamically kind of in a really interesting environment. And is it a coincidence that from a surface uh, morphology perspective, it's showing a really unique uh, set of landforms and, and features compared to uh, other Saturnian satellites. Probably not a coincidence. So there's something. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that the, the dynamics of these, uh, the big difference between these things in the Saturnian system generally and asteroids and comets is they're existing in a much more uh, dynamic, dynamic environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not, I, I, 
can really talk about Phobos and Deimos. I think Julie's going to talk more about Phobos and Deimos, so I kind of left those Why alone. But that um, that my, my description is a hypothesis, uh, and my assumption is that this is a heavily cratered body like other small satellites in the Saturnian system, and that something has come along and covered up uh, what has been uh, just sort of a background accumulation of craters. And so that, that's, that's the assumption. I'm not sure how else to explain it not having a... So, so there's uh, what you can't really tell from here is the detail of the shape. Uh, so there, it, even though it's a very, you know, it's a small body, the gravitational forces here is like less than a centimeter per second squared. But there is downhill in this environment. And so uh, if you get something started, there is a preferred direction of flow. And, you know, these look like, in, in a sense, sort of classic hydrologic drainage features. You know, material, fine grain material following a, uh, 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 a downhill slope. You know, somebody tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if anybody knows what's going on here, but uh, that's that's sort of from an analogy standpoint. That's I, maybe a simple I mean, explanation. We don't obviously, have a detailed geodesic gravity map of this, right. but from the shape and assuming uniform density, most of the stuff is farming and no gravity. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's another theme that runs through this. If you look at the comet, you realize every comet looks different. But practically every comet we've had a good look at has got material ponded in mm -hmm. low gravity. Yes, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Good point. So, um, you know, I mentioned these, these high-level geologic processes that we think about primarily for terrestrial planets, and how do we apply them and understand them for small bodies is a, is a, is a challenge, because we often don't have analogies among the terrestrial planets for such low-gravity environments. Uh, but there are other sort of uh, direct and indirect clues about process and properties that can come from geologic observations. You know, taking pictures, variety of angles from orbit, stereo imaging, et cetera, allows you to get uh, topography and shape data, which can let you get a very good estimate of the volume of the body. You take the volume and mass data from uh, flyby trajectory analysis or gravitational field modeling, and you get a density, right? That's the one number that a lot of uh, theorists especially really want to know about an object, what it tells you about the interior in a, in a coarse bulk sense. You can do the same kind of thing if, if, if an asteroid or a comet has a satellite. You know, Kepler and Newton will tell you the, uh, the mass of the primary within some constraints, and so you get your volume measurement. You can, again, get a, get a good estimate of density. A lot of work recently on estimates, estimates of porosity from these mass and density measurements. Um, some, some new work that's being done um, uh, using the VESTA data on looking at crustal density anomalies by taking the topography out of the gravitational field mapping and seeing what's left over. Uh, and then uh, I'll mention cometary nuclei. And the best I could come up with is considerable confusion about the geology of, of comet nuclei. And I'll talk about those briefly. So uh, most asteroids are, are rocky. This is density on the x-axis and mass here. But there's a, a, a number of them that have uh, relatively high mass and low density. And there's some compositional information that tells us that these are not icy, at least on their uppermost surfaces. So uh, you can sort of recast that, as uh, uh, Dan Britt and others have done, into uh, uh, estimates of porosity. And uh, here's 0%, here's 80%. And so uh, these authors sort of group 
group the uh, the known asteroid that encountered spacecraft encountered asteroids into three different uh, categories: sort of standard rocky bodies uh, with a very uh, I'm sorry, standard rocky bodies with very low porosity, kind of uh, middle of the road, moderately porous, and then very porous uh, objects uh, based on their um, uh, high mass but but low density. So. Um, and you can, you know, there's about the same number in each of these populations so far. So is, is, highly, is high porosity typical? Uh, there are lots of ideas about, you know, what happens to an object like uh, Matilda, which is one of those very highly porous objects as deduced from that previous plot. What happens to an object like this uh, when you uh, basically create a global-sized impact crater in it? There's enough, there was enough energy likely to completely disrupt that object, but it, that energy was taken up in compression instead of um, fragmentation. Uh, so you end up punching these big holes in it, and some people think that you keep doing that over time. You build up the, you decrease the porosity through uh, compression until the object is completely disrupted, and then you start the process over again. Maybe you completely fragment it, it comes back together, or you just completely destroy it and start it on the, on the fragments, et cetera. But uh, observations like this really, uh, I think provide a lot of good information about this idea of rubble pile versus coherent uh, bedrock. Um, and I don't know how you, you guys deal with this when you're accreting. You don't think, you think, you don't think about porosity probably, right? You just build things. And uh, so is, is, is a porosity, high porosity, a natural outcome of the accretionary process or not? I guess if we start seeing more and more uh, high-mass, low-density objects uh, among the uh, collection of spacecraft-observed uh, small bodies, um, we might lean more in that direction. And uh, I'm not sure how that will influence uh, the theory and dynamics, but it's going to have some role in it. At the, um, uh, another example of uh, uh, small and uh, very porous body as deduced by mass and uh, and density estimates is Itakawa, and uh, Torrance touched on this as well. Very, very small object. I just one of my favorite pictures is a spacecraft looming above the surface there, at uh, zero phase. And uh, you know, this is a little, little lump. It's about the same size as the object that uh, Osiris Rex will visit and, and collect a sample from. This is an S-type asteroid. The Osiris Rex body is a C-type, uh, so it'll be, in theory, different. Uh, composition, but there aren't any craters, uh, or maybe arguably there are some craters, uh, but they're not very prominent on this small body, and so probably because it 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 can't take them, even though it has low porosity, it, it's probably the you know the disrupted remains of larger just lar larger bodies that have been uh, fragmented uh, over time, uh, but it, it's uh, it's a very uh, it's very confusing to interpret this surface as well. There are these low regions that have this fine-grained material that ponds up in uh, equipotential surfaces, which are not always flat on, on strangely shaped bodies. They can be bizarrely curved shaped surfaces, so you need the shape model to figure that out. <clears throat> and um, it's, you know, I guess arguable on whether there's uh, any regolith in places like this where you're seeing individual rocks and boulders and some pretty precariously perched uh, materials up there. Uh, and I mentioned um, uh, gravity anomalies. Here's an example again from the uh, the Dawn team's uh, press release stuff, uh, showing the kinds of work that they're doing, taking the topography out of their gravity field data. Now they've got some some wonderful stereo imaging, so they have a, a very good shape model 
of the object and they can do the kind of free air gravity anomaly work that you do in, in classic geophysics and see that there are crustal density anomalies associated with areas like the, the intersection of these two basins and the central peak of the large South Pole Basin. So there's, there's ways to probe the interior uh, through um, sort of geophysical oriented uh, uh, global imaging, topography, stereo imaging, and if you're in orbit around an object, getting that gravity field data. <clears throat> Just a, a few slides about comets because they frighten and confuse me. Um, they uh, were increasing the sample that have been imaged by spacecraft. Are they all going to turn out to be different, every single one of them? I don't know. There's a trillion or so to choose from, so that would be kind of interesting. Uh, but the, the sample so far is, uh, is, is really um, diverse in terms of uh, surface process. Uh, Temple 1 has these, uh, this is the deep impact, impact site. And while everybody was looking at that and getting excited, the geologists are looking up at this, right? These, uh, these beautiful layers. Uh, there's a stratigraphy. It wraps around uh, the object. Um, some of that uh, terrain is being eroded. Um, are these layers? Is this an onion skin structure that was somehow built up in layers of different material? Or are we seeing some surface expression of preferential erosion because of these jets and small-scale um, uh, regions of uh, evaporation or sublimation? Uh, lots and lots of puzzles. Uh, this is also, remember, a very low-density object, 0.4. Um, so how do you, uh, you, know, how do you rec reconcile that with the likely very porous and fluffy nature uh, of the interior? There's all kinds of interesting active processes happening, happening on this surface. These circular features, are they impact craters? You know, this is, a, this is a, an object that is shrinking with time, that every perihelion passage, it's losing a significant amount of mass and surface. And so, you know, there's, it's not like there's this ancient structure of, of buried impact craters that are being exposed, or is it? You know, what, what exactly is going on? Uh, it's, it's a lot of puzzles in here. And then, you know, you look at something like Vilt 2, what are these circular features? Are they, is every one of these a caldera, a cryovolcanic caldera, or are they impact craters? Some of them have raised rims. Uh, their depressions, I have no idea. And, and so these are, you know, these are puzzles that are, that are still being worked out from the available data, and it's likely that additional cometary encounters are going to uh, show additional diversity as well. There are terrains on uh, Temple 1 that, that mimic this kind of, of um, uh, uh, structure, pitted, circular pitted and uh, irregular structure. So maybe it's a common feature. On, uh, on cometary nuclei just because of the sublimation process. We just don't know enough, haven't seen enough examples of them to, to say for sure. So what's coming in the future? Uh, Torrance mentioned a few things. Um, so Rosetta will get to churyumov gerasimenko I believe, uh, next year, 2013, or early 2014? 14. Early 14, right? And uh, we'll spend uh, a number of years watching this, this cometary nucleus go from its relatively more quiescent outer heliocentric environment through a, um, uh, a passage close, closer to the sun. And that, that is just going to be really interesting to look at, at changes in this environment. First time that we'll spend some quality time uh, in a, a cometary uh, environment. Of course, Dawn will go on to series. Lots of interesting debates and predictions about whether that will really be NASA's first KBO mission, maybe. 
Uh, if you stir things up enough, then you know objects that formed much farther out, some of them are going to end up closer in. And Ceres is a great candidate because of its density, because of its composition, more volatile rich composition, to be an object that formed farther out. But who knows? Um, I, th I think most of the bets are that it will at least look very different than Vesta, and which will make for a, a pretty interesting mission. <clears throat> of course, we'll get our first look at the, the sort of classical Kuiper Belt uh, objects, Pluto and, and Charon, with uh, New Horizons in just a few years. OSIRIS-REx will visit a small uh, C-type asteroid and bring some samples back. And then there's a number of opportunities in, in discovery new frontiers and various programs that the Europeans are considering for small bodies, and Torrance mentioned those as well. And my expectation is that increasing the sampling of these objects is just going to increase the diversity of, of surface geologic processes that we see, probably increase the number of puzzles that we find as well, because, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, planetary geologists are trained by looking at the moon and looking at Mars and looking at Venus and going into the field, and we're in these high-gravity environments, and we don't have analogs for many of these processes or uh, uh, circumstances that exist on these uh, particular bodies. Extreme ranges of temperature, uh, vacuum, uh, low gravity, uh, difficult things to simulate, um, even if people send you money. And uh, Torrance mentioned uh, the survey, and this is the, uh, the, the key questions table from the survey, and I've just highlighted some of the issues that, uh, in green here, have to do with primitive bodies, and lots of them. The survey, I think, has done a great job of outlining some of the key priorities for um, science questions related to primitive bodies, both in terms of um, uh, building them, putting them together, uh, and... Um, Incorporate, incorporating them in the, the classical uh, uh, larger planetary bodies of the solar system, uh, thinking about uh, the ways that some of them could be the sources of volatiles for uh, uh, inner planets like the Earth, like Mars, perhaps Venus, of course, and then um, thinking about uh, you know, potential uh, hazards from near-Earth objects as well. There's a really nice story that, that is developed in the Primitive Bodies chapter and embraced by the, the community through the survey for continued study of these, these objects. So let me summarize then. Um, geologic and geophysical observations of, of primitive or semi-primitive bodies, depending on what your definition of primitive is, uh, allows us to look at geologic processes on a, on a whole different stage than we're used to uh, for the terrestrial planets. But it's the same kind of processes, fundamentally the same kind of physics uh, going on, just with some significant modifications in the variables, so impacts, tectonic features, erosional features, even volcanic uh, features. Uh, and I think there are ways to start to tie those, maybe through models, maybe through speculation, to uh, different scenarios for origin and evolution of, uh, of some of these small body populations. Um, there, there are some other geologic observations that we can make that are uh, directly related to obtaining geologic and geophysical measurements like density, porosity, looking at spatial variations in the impact crater size frequency distribution uh, and the uh, degradational state of craters. And that, those, I think, can be used to provide some constraints, maybe soft, maybe hard. Uh, we can argue about that over the next few days on formation models and surface interior evolutionary pathways. 
And then finally, I just have to wonder what surprises await. There is a giant sample of unsampled populations out there in the Kuiper Belt, uh, among the centaurs, among the Trojan asteroids. I, I, you know, Torrance, you didn't mention that Trojans are on the list of New Frontiers 4 as well. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I go into uh, schools and kids ask about asteroids, and, and it used to be, I would say, oh, yeah, they're, they're all between Mars and Jupiter, and there's a million of them bigger than a kilometer. And now I have to tell them, well, there's a million of them in these two Trojan clouds as well, you know, and it's just a giant population of unsampled bodies, and Kuiper Belt's another one. Uh, and uh, it's likely that we'll, we'll be surprised and delighted by what we see on those surfaces and hopefully educated as well. Um, so I'll end with this, uh, this really nice uh, summary of, of sort of where we are. Uh, add Vesta to that mix on this scale. Uh, and uh, I think it's a, a pretty exciting time for small body geology and geophysics. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.